This morning we come to perhaps the most unusual book in the Bible, the book of Jonah. Last week we looked at the Prince of Prophets, Isaiah. This morning we come to the court jester, the comedian. Um, It's probably no coincidence that the new Three Stooges movie came out this week. Um, Jonah could have been one of them. Uh, The Three Stooges were Jews, by the way. Uh, You probably uh, knew that. Well, Jonah, he's known because of the big fish. A lot of people say, well, whales don't eat people. Well, they don't, but it doesn't say it was a whale. It says it was a great fish. Now, here's a guy that caught what used to be called a Jew fish. They're now called Goliath groupers. They can get 12 to 1,500 pounds. When you're snorkeling, this is what they look like. And that's almost life size. Um, I met a guy who had scars across his wrists and ankles because he was snorkeling, dove down under a ledge, and he thought he was looking at the front end of a Volkswagen. But then the front end opened and sucked him in, closed its jaws, and his feet and fins were the only things sticking out from that guy's mouth. That is most likely the fish that inhaled Jonah. But Jonah, though known for that incident, is an incredible book that contains at the heart of it one of the greatest revivals that ever took place in a pagan city, the capital city of the world at that time, of the primary empire of Assyria, the capital city of Nineveh. Nineveh was excavated by archaeologists in 1843. They discovered about an eight-mile city that sprawled the larger city for about 30 miles, which was unheard of in that day. But the eight-mile city was defined by walls, five of them that ran the entire perimeter that were a 100 feet high, three moats. One of the walls was wide enough on top for four chariots to go on the top of the wall side by side. That's the width a hundred feet high, that is one of five, and inside of three of them were canals or moats that completely surrounded the city. There were lions and bulls that guarded the 15 gates into the city. There was inlaid alabaster, ivory, other fine uh, stones to decorate the place. They had palatial gardens and castles inside the city. It was an enormous, world-class, well-constructed city for way back then. But equal to their engineering and their wealth was their immorality and their idolatry. They were utterly pagan. They had never heard of the one true God. And... The book of Jonah begins with a call to Jonah, almost exactly like any other of the prophets. 
Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Micah chapter 1 begins, the word of the Lord came to Micah. Nahum, the oracle came to Nahum. The minor prophets begin this way. You would expect it to begin this way. And so when God begins speaking to Jonah, he says, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. In other words, enough is enough. They're going to destroy themselves. It won't be good for the children. It won't be good for those that they oppress. They're spinning out of control. I need to do something. I need to send my word to reach this people. Now, so far, so good. But at this point, everything goes wrong. Verse 3 begins with the words, but Jonah. Mark those words. It's not the only time you'll find those words. But Jonah appears several times. The word but is an important uh, word. In fact, it's said that when General Douglas MacArthur used to negotiate with, with uh, other nations, he would tell his translator, don't bother translating until they say the word but, then translate everything after it. But gets to the bottom line, the truth. And here we come to a number of important, the word but is used strategically in the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, by the way, is unique in a number of ways. It's the only uh, prophetic book where it's entirely narrative. It's the only prophetic book that Jesus, or the, the only minor prophet that Jesus quotes. He's the only prophet that Jesus refers to himself as. As Jonah was three days, so the Son of Man. So Jesus referred to himself as an illustration in Jonah. He's the only one of the prophets that Jesus did that with. Jonah's the only one that's not only narrative, but the whole story is like a comedy. It's like one mistake after another. He's one of the only prophets that disobeyed God. Normally, the prophet is, is like almost the, the mouthpiece. If, if God says it, it comes out like a microphone. The person, the prophet just says exactly what God said. But not so in Jonah. Here we come, verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord. Now, running away is stupid anyway, but when you think about this, this is a prophet of God. Any prophet of God should know the fact that God's big enough that you can't run away from him. How small was, was Jonah's God for Jonah to think he could run away? Are you kidding me? There's something wrong with this man. Something had happened. Here he's a prophet, and his God had gotten so small. And that is exactly where the problem lies. Jonah's God had shrunk to be as little as Jonah. Let me explain why. The whole thing of why Jonah ran away. Let me just say, it wasn't because he's afraid of crowds. You know, some people say, well, if, if I was asked to stay, go to a foreign nation and speak, I wouldn't have gone either because I can't stand sp speaking in front of crowds. That had nothing to do with it. Jonah was used to talking to crowds. Well, he wasn't afraid of traveling because he was going to get on a boat to go to, to Tarshish. By the way, Nineveh was 500 miles to the east of Israel. Tarshish was 2,000 miles to the west. Which tells you something else. He's not only running away from God, he's running away from God's assignment. He had an assignment to go 500 miles east. He gets on a boat to go 500 or 2,000 miles west. 
And he thinks he's going to run away from God. Now, anybody could have stopped it right here and said, um, Jonah, may I just have a, let's just reason about this. You really think you're going to get away from the big guy? You think you're going to be able to run away from God? I don't think so. That is exactly because. Now, here's the deal. How did Jonah lose sight of the grandeur and greatness of God? Here's the answer. He was called to serve God. In the book of Kings, we read that this same Jonah, the prophet, was given a message for Israel and he delivered it faithfully. But it was a good news message. It was good news for Israel. Unlike Jonah's contemporary Amos, who brought the bad news, and nobody liked Amos, but they all liked Jonah because he was the good news prophet. Suddenly, Jonah goes from serving his God to serving his reputation. Jonah loved the reputation as the good news prophet for Israel. If he goes and preaches to Nineveh, the capital city of the arch enemy of Israel, Assyria, he knows God well enough to know that God is compassionate. And the God who's sending him to Nineveh is preaching judgment is perhaps going to have mercy on Nineveh and on the whole nation of Assyria. And so Jonah struggles with that assignment. And he doesn't want to lose his identity as the good news preacher. He really quit worshiping God and started worshiping his own ego. And so he tries to run in the opposite direction. Now, when you submit to the size of your ego, you are living in a very small world. And God said, okay, Jonah, you're going to live in such a small world. Oh, this is good. Listen to this. I'll put you in something as, as big as you are. I will put you inside a fish's belly. And you'll be down there marinating until you're just ripe. For three days and three nights. And you know the story. He gets in the boat. They head out to sea. A storm comes up because God sent a storm. The sailors get petrified. Jonah knows exactly what's going on. So he goes down below deck to sleep it off. He plunges into a deep sleep. Now, the deep sleep is because he's escaping. It's like he was drunk on sleep. Sometimes you just, the only place to go is to sleep. And he went to sleep. He went to sleep it off. And as he's sleeping in the hull of this ship, the sailors come down and they're up on deck sending out scud missiles. They're all praying to their own God. Oh, God of this, please help. The God of the wind and the rain, please help. The God of the, the, of the sea, please help. And, and the, you know, they're calling on all these pagan gods. And Jonah's sleeping. They come down and wake him up. And they said, come on, up on deck. Don't you care if we die? You call on your God. And then Jonah explains. I know exactly what's happening. It's all my fault. You don't even have to cast your lots to see who's, who's at fault here. It's my fault because I serve the God. I serve the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the earth and the land. That dry land you wish you were on right now, my God made that. In this 
sea that you're sloshing around in that you wish you weren't in, my God made that. And he's the God in heaven. He's the one true God. So throw me overboard. Now they're thinking, if this God's so, so upset with this guy, we don't want to mess with him. Because we don't want to get him any more angry at us than he already is. So they rode the harder and tried to get back to port. But they couldn't do it. So they take Jonah's word and they pick him up and toss him into the sea. And almost like instantly, the wind stops, the waves die down. Jonah's down there. A fish comes up, swallows him. Now, the outline of the book of Jonah is awesome. Chapter 1, on the run. Chapter 2, in the fish. Chapter 3, behind the pulpit. Chapter 4, under the plant. We're up to chapter 2. We're in the fish. The fish comes up, this giant Goliath grouper, and swallows Jonah. Now, did you ever notice that the only chapter in the book of Jonah that's poetry is chapter 2? There's a reason. I never realized this before. Chapter 2 is poetry because it's the only place in the whole book that Jonah is hitting on all cylinders. He is, for the first time, this is a reality check. God now surrounds Jonah in a world the size of Jonah, a fish's belly. And from the depth of the belly, Jonah cries out in prayer. And this chapter 2 is like beautiful. It's worth memorizing. The whole chapter could have been... a a chapter in the book of Psalms. It's a masterpiece of theology, poetry, of being right with God, of calling on God. We discover that Jonah was a man of prayer. He prays this incredible prayer. He cries out to God in despair. And you know, have you ever noticed that when you go through the darkest times in life is often when you pray the best? Have you found that God often uses crisis and calamity to not only get our attention, but to make us right with God? That's what happened to Jonah. Jonah is here and he's right with God. Jonah is hearing now from God and in the middle of this prayer. It's a beautiful, beautifully structured, beautifully written. It's warm and endearing. He first refers to God in the third person. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me from the depth of the grave. I called for help and you listened to me. He goes from the third person to the second person. You hurled me into the deep. All your waves, they were your waves, Lord, that broke over me. But then he has hope that he's going to come out somehow. I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. I was engulfed in waters. They threatened me. They deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. It was like he became a piece of sushi. (laughs) He was wrapped in seaweed. He's inside the, the fish's belly. Feeling like a piece of sushi. And he's in there for three days. That's, that's a wild place for a prayer meeting. That's a wild place for a garden of prayer. But Jonah's in the garden of prayer, surrounded by seaweed. And who knows what else? Shrimp and plankton and fish heads and scales and 
Oh, my imagination could really have fun with this. Give me about 20 minutes to describe what it was like. But all the time, the enzymes inside this fish's belly. I mean, imagine the enzymes. Can you imagine? You know, th- those fish don't, don't chew their meal. They don't fillet the fish before they swallow. You get the picture? The enzymes in a fish's belly like this are incredibly forceful. They're way, I mean, they, they crush bones. So three days exposed to the enzymes in this fish's belly would have stripped him of all his hair, uh, taken all the pigmentation out of his body. I mean, you, have you ever been swimming for too long and you get out after an hour and your, your skin is kind of shriveled? Imagine being under this and in all this goop and enzymes and, and all the other crud in there that's rotting and you're in there for three days. It would eat, it would do a number on your, on your outer skin. Well, it did a number on, it, it digested nicely the coarser side of Jonah. It took care of his ego and broke down his pride. And all those barriers that he had put up are now being pulverized in the enzymes inside this fish's belly. And verse 8 is like one of the, this could be a screensaver. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Now, he wasn't talking about himself necessarily or the Israelites. He's referring to those who cling to worthless idols. He's referring now to Nineveh, to his assignment. And then he makes this incredible declaration. It's like he renews his prophetic vows. He said, I will sing a song of thanksgiving and sacrifice to you. Imagine where he was saying, I'll sing. What I have vowed to you as a prophet, I will now make good. And then he says, salvation comes from the Lord. Would you say that with me this morning? Salvation comes from the Lord. Let's say it together again. Salvation comes from the Lord. What's the next thing that happens? The fish goes swimming over to the edge and he hiccups and out comes Jonah. Salvation comes from the Lord. And what's the next thing that's going to happen? You could have predicted it. Exactly. We're now back to chapter 1, verse 1, except we're in chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim the message I give you. And Jonah, now notice, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. Don't you love it? God has a way of using imperfect people. Sometimes you get asked to do something and you say, oh, I'm not worthy. Well, praise God. That's right. You're not worthy. I'm glad you realize that. You're not worthy. Unworthiness. Feeling unworthy is not a reason, it's not an exemption card with God. God uses imperfect people. What else do we learn from the book of Jonah? Well, the first thing we learn is that God uses imperfect people. He doesn't wait till we're perfect to use us. Jonah didn't disqualify himself because he tried to run away and he spent three nights in the wrong place. God's ready to use him. So he picks up right where he left off. And now, are you ready for this? The shortest sermon in history. Eight words. Eight words. 
I read in the Guinness Book of World Records, um, there is no shortest sermon in the Guinness Book of World Records. There is the longest. It was 72 hours by some guy down in West Palm Beach. My kids always wanted me to break the record. I said, I'm game if you are. I could go 72 hours. I think I could. I don't know if you could, but I think I could. You wonder how many people were left at the end of 72 hours. But this is the shortest sermon ever preached. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now, first of all, he's not only bringing the word of God for the first time to this pagan city, but he's an albino. All pigmentation is now gone. Imagine having an albino show up in Nineveh. Can you imagine what he smelled like? He had no hair in a place where there was a lot of hair. You know, they didn't shave. There weren't barbers. It wasn't like that back then. All the hair was now gone. And these are relatively an olive or darker skinned people. But now you've got an utterly white, 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 white guy. Eight more days and then it was going to be destroyed. And he didn't even preach it with compassion. There was no tear in his voice. It was more like, eight more days and then it will be destroyed. The next words. And they believed God. Now, it wasn't like they, they could recite the four spiritual laws or tell you how to get saved. They, you know, the book of Romans hadn't been written yet. They couldn't tell you all about the book of Isaiah. You know, they believed God. What did they believe about God? They believed that they were going to all be destroyed. That's what they believed. We're going to be destroyed. That's all the word they had. And that's what they believed. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. They heard the Word of God, and they believed exactly what they heard. So everybody, every Tom, Dick, and Harry, every Mo, Larry, and Curly, fasted. And their gerbils fasted, and their Siamese cats fasted, and their basset hounds, and, and golden doodles. They all fasted. Their sheep and their cattle all fasted. They're parakeets. They didn't feed the birds. No food, no drink. And the king says, who knows that God may have compassion. And he said, word, pray, call upon God urgently. Why? Because they believe God. Why else do you call on God urgently? They called on God urgently. Now when you call on God, He turns to listen. When you call urgently, figuratively speaking, He bends down. They called urgently. God bent down. And He did have compassion. The next word says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction they had, uh, He had threatened. Then you come to chapter 4, and it begins with those pitiful words again. But 
Jonah. Now, when a whole city of 120,000, and most people believe that's households, so probably five to 600,000 people all cry out in repentance, all turn to God. God has mercy on them. The angels of heaven are dancing. The angels of heaven are rejoicing. But Jonah. Just when you think it couldn't get any worse. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. But he did one thing right. He prayed. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to uh, anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life. It is better for me to die than to live. And he asked him, do you have the right to be angry? And he says, I'm angry enough to die. To add to the drama of this silly little pitying going on here by Jonah. Jonah, who's so sick over the fact that he's no longer the good news preacher for Israel. He now preaches and the whole, the, the, the rival nation of Assyria is now turning to God and he's the one to blame. And when that gets back to Israel, he's no longer going to be as honored as he was before. But God loved Jonah as much as he loved Nineveh. And so he comes to Jonah, and he has a plant grow up like, it's probably the castor bean plant. It grows a foot a day, but this was supernaturally like 8, 12 feet in an hour. But it has huge leaves and gives a commodity that's very rare in the Middle East, and that is shade. And a lot of people love the castor bean because it casts shade. Now, <clears throat> do you know anything about fair-skinned people? The fairer-skinned people burn the worst. Imagine Jonah in the Middle Eastern sun. You can imagine why a little shade went a long way for Jonah. And so now he's all happy over this plant then God sends a worm. And the plant goes, and now Jonah's all sick again because the plant is gone. First of all, Jonah wasn't any bigger than this fish's stomach. Now he's no bigger than the castor bean leaf. He's reducing himself. Angels are rejoicing and he's pouting, he's sulking. And God says, do you have the right to be angry? Same question again, isn't it? God doesn't mind asking the same stuff. God doesn't mind saying the same things. Angry enough to die. And then, now God has Jonah right where he wants him. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you do not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 households 
who cannot tell their right hand from their left. They're spiritually ignorant. They don't know the one true God from all the pagan gods. And many cattle as well. Isn't it interesting? God cares about the livestock. God cares about the animals. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Should I not be concerned? Five words. Should I not be concerned? Like the five fingers on a hand, like the five points on a star, like the five primary systems of the body. Like five shots from a gun. Bam, 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 bam. Should I not be concerned? It was like God extended His hand with those five words and put it on Jonah's head to change his thinking and put his hand inside Jonah's chest cavity to touch his heart and to pulverize the hardness of his heart so that it could beat again. Like quadruple bypass, all of a sudden, his heart is changed by those five words. Should I not be concerned? It's the heart of God. Should I not be concerned? And the answer is, yes, God, you should be concerned. And the logical response comes, so what's wrong with you? How could you miss it so badly? How could you not understand my compassion is not just for Israel, it's for all nations. My compassion is not just to make you look good, Jonah, or feel good. My compassion is so that the nations might be reached. Should I not be concerned? No, when you look at it that way, those five words changed everything. And what we find here are a number of lessons. First, a bad attitude will defeat good theology. We can know it in our head, but it will never be lived out in our lives if our attitude is wrong. If at our core we are selfish the way Jonah was, we will never learn to obey God the way he wants us to. Jonah knew that God was compassionate, and he was right about that. He knew that God had the power to turn the hearts even of Nineveh back to himself. But because he had a rotten attitude, it never translated into obedience. Second, a large ego will always shrink our view of God. Our God will seem no bigger than we are. It is a dangerous and slippery slope to be on when we start serving God for our own pleasure and enjoyment or for some reason to make ourselves look good. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. God wants us to be faithful. Someone said the story of Jonah is a man who was a nationalist serving a God who was an internationalist. And on this Sunday, when our nation is again racially divided, I want to remind us that we have a God of all people. And what we are demonstrating here at Lilburn Alliance Church is a message for the nations. It's a message for the world. That our God is not white or Caucasian or English speaking. He is a God of the nations. And that was the message for God's people through Jonah, that Jonah had to understand himself. Third, our conduct flows out of our disposition toward the love of God. Jonah knew about the love of God, but his heart was not experiencing the love of God. 
It was the love of God that was to give Jonah his own self-esteem and his identity. But his identity came in working for God rather than in having a relationship with God. And so his own heart lost touch with the love of God. And because of that, everything began to wash out. No, we can have God's word and miss God's heart is the fourth thing. Jesus had to say to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, not knowing that these scriptures point to me. And we who study the word of God and learn the word of God, we are the people who want the word of God to lead us to the heart of God and not come short. And this is perhaps a minor point, but the trumpet of the prophet is muted when the prophet pursues Prophet, P-R-O-F-I-T. Prophet, the, 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 trying to make money off the gospel or trying to be successful off the gospel is always the beginning of the end of the ministry. Jonah found that he loved the fanfare of being the good news prophet. But he confused that with serving his God. God says, should I not be concerned? He extends His hand to us today. And I think of the neighbors. This week, I got to meet a a Kurdish man who lives just down the street. We visited 700 homes leading up to Easter, door to door. And one of the men said, I'm from Kurdistan. I said, no, you're not. He said, yes. I said, do you know, for 20 years, I prayed every day for the Kurdish people. And now I get to meet you. It touched him. He said, what do you do? I said, I'm the pastor of a church right down the street. He said, I'll be there Sunday. He was here this past Sunday. This week I visited him. I sat on his floor. It's their culture. He handed me a Quran as a gift. I said, we're going to get together and talk about that. Why? Should I not be concerned? Why go to Clarkston? Why take a perfectly good Saturday and invest it in Clarkston? Should I not be concerned? Why do we staff Awana clubs on Wednesday night and serve 120 rowdy kids and struggle to keep them in control? It's almost organized chaos. Should I not be concerned? The heart of God is full of compassion. Our world is looking for people of compassion who still love needy people. There is nothing that rings with greater authenticity than when people who have give to those that need with no strings attached. That's our God. He's lavish. He's extravagant. He's giving. And that's why our mission as a church is to take seekers into the fullness of Christ because salvation comes from the Lord. That's why we target our neighbors and the nations and the next generation. Because God looks at us and says, should I not be concerned? With a wink? Like, you're with me on this? You with me on this? 
Are you with me? Who's glad that we have a God who is concerned? Who wants your heart to grow a little bit larger to encompass more of the needs around us? That's where God wants to take us as a people. This book of Jonah is for us. And it's no wonder that Jesus, when He was trying to explain the fact that He would die and be raised three days later, He, he, he picked Jonah. And He said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. No, and I began to think about why was it that he picked Jonah. And I began to compare and contrast. And Jonah was three days in the fish. Jesus was three days in the earth. Jonah did it for his own rebellion. Jesus did it for ours. Jonah went through an emotional struggle with his own ego. Jesus went through a struggle leading up to His moment because of His deity. How can this happen to me as God? Jonah tried to avoid it. Jesus asked to avoid it. Jonah, it was contrary to His nature because He was selfish. It was contrary to Jesus' nature because He was righteous. Jonah was picked up by the sailors. Jesus was picked up by the soldiers. Jonah came out and preached repentance, and Jesus came out and preached repentance. Jonah brought many to faith, and Jesus brought many to faith. When Jonah hit the water, peace came to the earth. When Jesus went to the cross, peace is offered to all mankind. When Jonah was thrown into the sea, the sailors recognized it was God. And when Jesus was crucified on the cross, the centurion recognized that it was God. And when Jonah came out of the fish, he preached judgment. And when Jesus came out of the grave, he preaches grace and mercy. Hallelujah. Praise God. Now, what are we going to do about it? Jesus also said that one day, Those in Nineveh who repented will rise up and judge us if we do not repent. Should I not be concerned? May the five fingers of God be placed on your head today to change your thinking. May the five fingers of God be placed over your heart, inside your chest cavity, to remove the pride and the crassness the smallness, and to perform bypass surgery to remove the blockages and bring you back in touch with the grace and mercy and compassion of our God. Hallelujah.